Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, Rooted in Religion, The Melody of Ecstasy, where me and my group, Arthurstown, will delve deep into the characteristics and intricacies of many different musical societies across the globe. More specifically in this episode, how each culture and their music is influenced by religion and spirituality. I'm your host, Laura Trapiti, and this is the second installment of our Diverse Worlds of Music podcast, brought to you also by Josh, Luke, Shengze, Austin, and James. Hello, my name is Josh Carbon, a Native American specialist, and this is part one, Sounds of America, in our podcast, Rooted in Religion, the Melody of Ecstasy. Okay. This section of the podcast will kick off by starting locally in America, looking at music rooted in religion and the feelings of ecstasy it brings. Native American music is honestly based around simplicity and being able to integrate society and other peoples from the tribe. They believe that music had supernatural power and can summon or call upon certain gods of their choice. The majority of Native American songs have no words, producing sounds that are strictly for spiritual purposes. These purposes could be someone trying to influence the weather, heal a sick person, or for a spirit to look after the village. In some tribes, songs are real in a supernatural world, but they need to be unraveled and dreamt for someone to be realized. People who specialize in making songs usually were also religious experts and leaders of ceremonies. The most important social division in Native American society between men and women was also reflected in music. Women had a smaller repertoire and use for songs because their voices were smooth, nasally, and they could create soothing melodic elements, which just weren't that common. Almost all their instruments were percussive and stated before their songs almost never had any words. All their percussive elements were made from animals or things they scavenged or traded, and this is the reason they really have no melodic instruments, except for one, the flute. Usually handmade, the flute was used as an accent on top of male or female vocals. These music and religious practices were very inclusive because their percussive circles would get very big and their ceremonies and rituals would take place with the entire tribe. Some performed, some danced, some just took in the religious expedition. These great big gatherings calling to the gods, singing, playing a drum, dancing all in unison is what produced these such strong feelings of ecstasy in their music. Working together as a community to complete ceremonies united their societies and would give everyone feelings of pride, unison, and joy. So, to recap episode one, the Native Americans associated their music with primarily religious events and big gatherings and ceremonies, which were very inclusive and worked like a glue for their tribe's everyday lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this part of the episode, which is the Austin Arthur's Morning Show. My name, of course, is Austin, and as always, I'll be sharing some top-tier content with you all today. And once again, if you enjoy this part of the podcast, um, you can subscribe to my page um, and get notified for when new episodes come out. So, ladies and gentlemen, well, we have a super interesting topic today, and we are going to talk slash learn 
about sub-Saharan African music, in particular the instrument called the Mabira. So, cannot wait to discuss this with you guys further. Now let's get started. Sub-Saharan African music is so hard to pinpoint because it boasts such great cultural diversity. In the country, there are over 800 ethno-linguistic groups. 386 languages are found in Nigeria alone, which is absolutely ridiculous. And in addition to those, there are many extended communities and kingdoms cross that cross national boundaries. And also, there are very few national musical traditions, so it is very hard to pinpoint one thing to perfectly describe sub-Saharan African music. But for the f- sake of this podcast episode, we are just going to focus in on the Shona, which are a Bantu-speaking people who live in Zimbabwe, which is in southeastern Africa. And the Shona, they have a very strong reverence for family and elders, both living and deceased, which is very, very interesting because I've never paid homage or included the deceased in my community. So, but that is something that is super interesting. Now the Shona conduct what is called a Bira, which is an all night ceremony involving spirit possession. And they conduct this entire ceremony through music. And the main instrument they use for this ceremony is the Mabira. And the Mabira is what we will be diving into from now on. Uh, Where to get started with the Mabira? All right, let's just dive into it. Well, the Mabira is a 22 key instrument and is classified as a lamellophone. Oh, wait, hold on. Um, Just got an email from John. He emailed us a very great question, asking us to describe what a lamellophone is. Well, John, a lamellophone is a class of musical instruments that have tuned metal or reed tongues set on a bridge, and it's mounted to a soundboard or box. Really, really cool stuff. And the Mibira is a lamellophone, so it's very, very similar. Now, continuing on, the Mbira is the most popular lamellophone out of any of the instruments in that class and has been developed to the highest level in Southern Africa. Now, oh wait, hold on. I just saw a tweet from Jerome that hits my next point on the button. Jerome, you're exactly right. One of the most interesting things about the Mbira is how the melody can change, even if the people are playing the same notes. Wow. Just think about that. That is so interesting. Oh, wow. Literally playing the same notes, but you get a different melody. That is super interesting. All right. Well, I hope that this podcast episode or segment um, was useful at all in learning about sub-Saharan music, in particular, the Mabira. Um, And if also... I totally recommend looking up Emmanuel Chidzere or David Matfumo if you want to hear some cool Mabira players 
um, there, great. But uh, that is it for this for today in my segment. And uh, thank you for joining the Austin Morning Show. Have a good one. Moving along to our last section of the podcast, Musical Origins of Asia, I will be discussing the fascinating topic of shamanism in Korea. As discussed in our previous podcast, Korea's complicated history has led to the search for a true Korean identity and debate over its culture and roots. One frequent refrain in this discourse is that the indigenous religion of shamanism, or a form of animism in which ritual specialists channel and manage complex pantheons of spirits and their place in the material world, is the wellspring from which Korean culture sprang. Korean shamanism can be roughly divided into two kinds, aesthetic or hereditary. In the aesthetic tradition, shamans are possessed by spirits in shaman rituals, whereas in hereditary traditions, shamans act as intermediaries with the spirit world without experiencing spirit possession. It is also important to note that in all forms of shamanism, the majority of shamans are female, in contrast to many religious rooted in patriarchal ideals. Some important practices of shamanism include spirit sickness, or the training of shamans through a process of learning how to manage illness, a kind of breach in one's psychological makeup through which spirits can enter, and other estomach estatic rituals. Now that we have a little background, let's move to the instrumental inquiry segment before we discuss some more. This email from a viewer asks, what is the structure of a shamanist ritual and what would it generally sound like? That's a great question. Basically, rituals often have a basic macro structure in which the shaman or shamans purify the ritual space first. Then they make a road for spirits to travel to the ceremony and back along. Then they explain the reasons for the ritual. And lastly, they invite, receive blessings and advice, entertain and send off spirits in descending hierarchical order, and feed and ward off evil spirits. And obviously, music is present and essential throughout. Here's a very short clip of what the beginning of one might sound like. the presence of the hourglass or jango drum is present in most rituals like the one we just listened to. The musical accompaniment of ecstatic shaman rituals like the one just played is based on traditional rhythmic patterns, jangdun, like most Korean traditional music. Specifically, the core shamanist patterns, often in 12-8, are, are the most common rhythmic patterns in Korean traditional music. Jangdun provides the ry rhythmic framework for the shaman's improvisations and also, through accelerations of rhythmic patterns, shifts between patterns and sudden endings create a sense of flexibility of ritual time and a sense of its transformation, a key aesthetic principle in Kore Korean traditional folk music. Some derivative genres of shamanism include sinawi, or improvisational chamber music that came about when two very fundamental groups of professional musicians, members of the lowly Xiongmin class, began to play shamanist music in chamber settings for rural bureaucrats and aristocrats. The mechanism of transformation in Sinawi and Korean traditional music generally is one reason why traditional music retains such expressive power in the midst of struggles and tragedies of modern Korea. 
Yet, while the structure recalls the shamanist tradition, it also bears the imprint of the solo improvised genre shanjo. Also, this music demonstrates a key principle in the melodic organization of Korean traditional music. It is based on the idea of living tones, or pitches that rise and fall in pitch and transform timberly and dynamically, thus making pitch and ornamentation inseparable. One of the most striking features of Sanawi and southwestern music is its use of dramatic raspy and rough timbres. Here's a sneak peek. genre routinely claimed to have originated in shaman culture I will discuss is that of the pansori, or musical epic story singing performed by a singer and an accompanist playing the buke, or barrel drum. Pansori suffered the same fate in Korean modernity as the hereditary sh shaman tradition, as singers were eager to escape their low social status. However, conflict arose when in the late 20th century, the history of the pansori was canonized under the influence of the intangible cultural heritage system and the Han idea or a complex emotional cluster often translated as resentful sorrow. It was thought by many to be essentially Korean and by many others to be the product of modern post-colonial efforts to create a quote-unquote Korean essence. All right, um, my name is James Bissett and I will be guiding you through a call-in question that we got from somebody named Marvin Bagley and he asked about Shintoism in Japan. So let's get started. Japan has over 6,000 islands with nearly 127 million people uh, currently. Uh, during the Nara period, however, there was much less people. This was from 710 to 794. Um, and during this time, Japan faced a lot of turmoil, which included multiple natural disasters, widespread disease outbreaks, which included the smallpox epidemic which was in 735 it killed about a quarter of the population and there was also a terrible famine and food shortage during this time as well with all this combined it resulted in the government um, starting to support buddhism and you know to support to try and promote like religious tranquility and try and get people thinking more positively and hopefully like deities and spirits would kind of guide them through this tough time and then with the supporting of Buddhism, it uh, ended up supplanting Shintoism into their religious lives. So Shintoism is the earliest Japanese religion. Um, it did not deal with the topic of death. So there wasn't really any answers for what would happen in the afterlife or after death. There was many local cults and also regional cults um, who supported Shintoism. And they all worshipped a, a diversity of gods and spirits. And then through Shintoism, there was kind of two different subcategories of music with it. The Mikagura. These songs were um, to God in homage and also for God for entertainment of the people. Um, this type of music was sung by a male chorus with small instrument, like small instruments in the background, kind of for rhythm and melody. And there was always a dance along with these. Uh, dance was integral. And then the other category of music from Shintoism is Sat Satogarura, which was 
during the folk this was performed during folk shinto rituals and this included uh no chorus dancing wasn't integral but there was lots of drumming and repeated uh rhythmic melodies for this type of music so that's kind of the music aspect of shintoism and then and this was all happening during the nara period and then in the 6th century buddhism arrived back to japan and this offered the Japanese a way to deal with death, and it ended up gaining a large following, um, causing the government to start to build monasteries, and with the government support, it started to flourish during war and the famine and, you know, um, the widespread disease and all that because people needed something to fall back on when everything's going so poorly. They needed their religion to kind of lift up their spirits and boost them. So, thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Shinzo. You can also call me Chris. Today, I will talk about two religions in Japan. The first one is Shintoism. Shinto music is the criminal and the festival music of Shinto, the indigenous religion of Japan. Kagura is the specific type of Shinto ritual criminal dance. Was strictly a criminal art derived from Kamikagura. Kagura has evolved in many directions over the span of more than a million. Today, it is very much a living tradition, with rituals tied to the rises of the agricultural calendar. And then, the instruments of Shinto music as much include the Wagon, Kagura Bu, Patriki, Susu, Tisumi, and so on. Shinto, mu- uh, Shinto music incorporates elements brought from religious traditions imported into Japan from mainland Asia, such as Buddhism. What is Buddhism? The term of, the term of Buddhism describes uh, a set of religious traditions that have developed across Asia and uh, parts of the rest of the world over the past uh, 2,000 and 1,500 years, originating with Gahama. Uh, Buddhism music is uh, created from inspired by Buddhism and part of Buddhism art. All Buddhists do not rely on a text like the Bible or the Korean. They put a criminal text on the complicated, complicated melody map, which will blur the pronunciations of the text and may change the meaning and the information of the word. In many parts of the world, melody content is reduced when content when text content is more important, such as rap and the opera. When it is not important to listen and understand these words, music museums are usually more free to expand the materials of music, especially the melody. Take an uh, example of the Hongyoku, which are the pieces of Buddhism music played by wandering Japanese Zen monks called Komoso. 
Kumosu temples were abolished in 1871, but their music, Hanguku, is one of the most popular contemporary music styles in Japan. Kumosu played Hanguku for、mm, enlightenment and arts as early as 13th centuries, but in The 18th century, a kumoso named the Kingdom Kasuwa of the folk city of Saint Petersburg was commissioned to travel through Japan and collect these、uh, musical pieces. The rest of these several years of the travel and the complication were 76 pieces. Okay, that's all. Thanks for listening. All right, hello everyone. My name is Luke, and today we're going to be talking about、uh, Hindustani music. So first off, what is Hindustani music? Well, Hindustani music is the、uh, is the very it's a classical traditional music that is practiced in northern India.、Uh, its name comes from one of the majority like ethnic groups of northern India, the Hindustani or the Hindi people.、Um, just like northern India. This religion, this、uh, music, is split into two religions. There's practitioners who are Hindi, Hindu, and practitioners who are Muslim.、Uh, the music's, the genre's origins has its place in uh, Hindi uh, practice, though. It was originally described in the Vedas, a very ancient piece of、uh, Hindu religious, not quite scripture stories. But、um, eventually, these when Islam arrived in the region,、uh, the Muslims began to play in the Hindustani style as well.、Uh, something that's very、uh, common about the Hindustani music is its focus on improvisation around a certain、uh, type of scale called the mode or rag in、uh, Hindi, and、um, and its focus on.、Uh, Extremely virtuosic practitioners. The way these practitioners get to the way they are is through a sort of teaching relationship.、Um, an ustad is the、uh, Muslim word for a musical master, and a pandit is the, Hus- is the word for a Hindu musical master. These masters would teach their students how to play these scales. They would play often for very long periods of time. And try to be as virtuosic and as knowledgeable an instrument as they could.、Uh, for example, there's a story about one of these、um, masters, I believe, a Muslim one, an ustad, who、uh, would tie his hair to the rafters of his house so that when he fell asleep, he would be jerked awake.、Uh, as you can see, this dedication、uh, is very important to. The music it is honestly very similar to the kinds of asceticism that we see in northern Indian religious practice, such as in Buddhism and Hinduism, where holy men will, for example, lay on beds of nails or eat very very little food. And for this reason, we can see kind of parallels between the religious experience and the musical experience, even if the music isn't always exactly religious. Everyone had a fun time listening, and hope everyone learned something and heard something new today. Until the next installment, thanks for listening.